to another edition of the UK Law Weekly podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week, we're going to be looking at In the Matter of an Application by Siobhan McLaughlin for Judicial Review. And the citation for this case is 2018 UKSC 48. And in our last case to be released in 2018, we will be looking at a case that shows the law is making great steps to acknowledge social changes in British society. The applicant at the heart of this dispute is Siobhan McLaughlin, who's from Northern Ireland and has four children. Their father and her partner of 23 years sadly passed away in early 2014, and so McLaughlin made a claim for widowed parents' allowance that is available under Northern Ireland social security law for those men and women who became widowed prior to March 2017. The sticking point was that McLaughlin and her partner were never actually married, and the benefit is only available for married couples or civil partners. On this basis, the allowance was denied to McLaughlin, and so the present application for judicial review questions whether this represents an unjustifiable form of discrimination prohibited under Article 14 of the European Convention on Human Rights. As that sits alongside the right to family life under Article 8, or alternatively, the right to private property under Article 1 of the First Protocol. At first instance, the High Court judge agreed that the relevant legislative provision, Section 39A of the Social Security Contributions and Benefits Northern Ireland Act 1992, was indeed incompatible with Article 14, as it sits with Article 8. But in the Court of Appeal, this was unanimously overturned, and so now the question goes before the Supreme Court, where we pick it up. In order to arrive at a decision, there are four questions that require answering, and the first of these skips past Article 14 and asks whether there is grounding in either Article 8 or Article 14. The wording of the question and the response is interesting because it does not require that there be an actual breach of either right, but instead that the circumstances of the case fall within the ambit of those rights. Clearly this offers a lot more flexibility, And so, in response to the question, the Supreme Court held that not only was this case within the ambit of the right to property, under Article 1 of the First Protocol, because benefits can rightly be described as a form of property, but it also falls within Article 8 as well, because the requirement of marriage or civil partnership shows an advocacy of a form of family life by the state. In the second question, we move on to Article 14, and ask whether there has been a difference in the way that McLaughlin has been treated compared to another person in a similar situation. The starting point for the justices here is the previous case of Shackle and the UK from the year 2000, where a widow in a similar position was denied assistance and her Article 14 claim rejected by the European Court on Human Rights. The basis for this was that marriage conferred a special status on the two individuals that is distinct from cohabitation, and that any such discrimination was well within the margin of appreciation that is afforded to the government of a member state. In theory, this meant that the prospects of McLaughlin having success in this case were very thin, but the Supreme Court noted that there is one important distinction. Whereas in Shackle, special regard was taken of the supposedly unique status of marriage, for the widowed parents' allowance, the primary aim is to benefit the children, And so in the grand scheme of things, whether the parents are married or not is of very little consequence. This brings us on to the next question that simply asks whether the discrimination existed because of a relevant status. 
And again, this can be answered in the affirmative, as while it is well established that being married is a special status, conversely, so too is being unmarried. The final question deals with the notion that Article 14 is by no means an absolute right, and so there may be a legitimate policy aim at play here, and therefore the court has to ask whether the legislation, as it stands, is a proportional means of achieving those aims. Now, the actual aim in this case can be said to be the promotion of marriage and civil partnerships, which is certainly a legitimate aim for a government to have, but the justice is held that denying social security to McLaughlin and, indirectly, her children, on the grounds of marital status, was not a proportionate means of achieving this aim. This conclusion by the Supreme Court was only emphasised by the UK's international obligations to protect the rights of children, and it was not by accident that reference was made to other jurisdictions where such benefits are paid directly to the child instead of via the parent. At the end of all this, then, the majority found in favour of McLaughlin, and the only thing left to decide was the remedy. As a starting point, a declaration of incompatibility was made under Section 4, Subsection 2 of the Human Rights Act 1998, so that the issue with the legislation can potentially be addressed, but it was acknowledged that the exact means of doing so may not be clear-cut. McLaughlin's case demonstrates that there needs to be some recompense for unmarried individuals, but, but the facts here were fairly cut and dry as the 23 years that her and her partner spent together was longer than most marriages last. There has to be some way to distinguish this from situations where the parents have never been in any sort of long-term relationship, but that is not easy to put a definition on. What would you consider to be a long-term relationship? Three months? Three years? In any case, that is a problem for another day, and in the meantime, we should think about the decision handed down in this case. As hinted at earlier, this was only a majority decision with Lord Hodge dissenting, and as ever, this is often an interesting place to begin our analysis. His issue was that the aim of the widowed parents' allowance was not primarily to benefit the children, but rather the widow themselves. This is an interesting argument and does have some merit, as the name of the benefit itself, widowed parents' allowance, could be said to focus either on the recipient's status as a widow, or, as the majority suggest, as a parent. Following the line of reasoning, that would bring the case much closer to the decision in Shackle, which should therefore be followed. Lord Hodge went on to say that even if the aim was to benefit the children, there was still enough of a justification there, such that there would not be a breach of Article 14. To be honest, I have a lot of sympathy with this viewpoint, and if the whole case had been decided in this way, it would be difficult to take issue with it from a legal perspective. Where the benefit is targeted is an open question, and I am probably 50-50 on the point as good arguments can be made on both sides. It is much harder, however, to maintain that the discrimination is justified in either case, because under Article 8 it does not seem proportional to deny the benefit based on whether people choose to formalise their relationship. And under Article 1 of the First Protocol, the same point can be made with respect to the rights of property. This brings us to a much wider movement that has been gathering momentum over the last few years or so, and can be seen in this case and others, such as the Steinfeld and Kaiden case covered earlier this year, the declining importance of marriage. Don't get me wrong, there will always be some place for marriage, not only because of its grounding in religion, but also for its formalisation of relationships, and to put it quite bluntly, the wedding industry is pretty huge and not going anywhere anytime soon. 
Nevertheless, long gone are the days where a stigma would be attached to couples who decided to cohabit, and many children grow up in happy families where the fact that the parents are not married makes no difference whatsoever. Even though Shackle and McLaughlin are separated by only 18 years, the social changes in that time mean it is not too surprising that these similar cases have gone in different directions. The courts are leading the way on this and it is the government that is having to play catch-up. It is not an easy task as many of the structures of the state, from benefits and taxation to healthcare and pensions, derive from a time when marriage was the norm and it was reasonable to build those institutions that we know around the assumption of the nuclear family. Over time, this will need to be untangled as our conception of the family unit changes. This will be met with resistance from those with a more traditional worldview, but the end result will be a more equitable society that has more respect for individual choice. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this episode, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. Another reminder that my employment law course is available, so if you are studying employment law, labour law, if you're involved in human resources in some way, or just studying as part of your undergraduate degree, then definitely check that out. It's basically a completely full textbook in video format, so it's very easily digestible, and it's only the cost of what you would pay for a revision guide, so definitely good value for money there. Um, I'll be back with another episode next week, but for now, bye!